And the name of the troop kind of tells you a little bit about the culture of our, our troop. Uh, actually, if you've ever read the book, Lord of the Flies, uh, that's pretty much what our, our Boy Scout troop was like. We were under-supervised. Anyway, every year we took a five-day, 50-mile canoe trip. And I will never forget my first 50-miler. I was paired with my buddy, Albert. And I, I'm not making any of this up, so... Elbert was in the front of the canoe. I was in the back of the canoe. All our gear and all our food for five days was in between. <clears throat> and I can't really remember how much training, how much practice, how much instruction I had in canoeing before that trip. But in retrospect, it obviously was not enough because I did not know how to steer the canoe. And the person in the back pretty much single-handedly steers the canoe. And so, uh, that's, that was the scenario. So, we got in our canoe, and our scoutmaster launched us out from the shore, and we began lazily going down the Little Black Creek. It was, it was really kind of like a small river. If you've ever seen the movie Deliverance, it was a lot like that. <clears throat> but the first stretch was fine. It was wide. We were going straight down the river. But about 100 yards down creek... Uh, the the uh, creek took a sharp left. And so here we are going down the creek slowly, and we get close to the bend, and I tried to steer the canoe left, but I did not know how to do it. And so the closer we got to the bend, Albert started giving instruction, and finally it was just obvious, we're going to go straight into this huge oak tree that had grown down over the water. The branches were down, almost touching the water. And as we got close, <laughs> it's funny now, it wasn't really funny then. As we got close to that tree, Albert began screaming. It was like a blood-curdling scream, like something out of an Albert Hitchcock movie. And it turns out that there was a snake on the branch at eye level. And so here's what happened. So we're, here's the canoe. It's like a train wreck in slow motion. El Albert is, is coming eye level toward this snake, and at the very last minute, Albert jumps up, the snake hits him in the chest, and falls into the canoe at his feet. <laughs> and I'll spare you the details of what happened. Albert uh, was okay, the snake not so much. The snake, I hope it was ready to meet its maker. <clears throat> and so I tell you that scary little story because it, it illustrates very simple truth that just sitting in a canoe does not make you a canoeist. If I were going to be a canoeist, I wouldn't need to practice, wouldn't need to know the J-stroke, I would have need to, needed to know how to use the, the, the paddle as a rudder, all those things. You probably heard the analogy that just like sitting in a garage doesn't make you a car, sitting in a church doesn't make you a Christian. And that's a tired old analogy, and I don't even really like it that much, but I can't stop thinking about it during this season because it's a season when we can't sit in a church, okay? It's a season when we can't gather for worship. And so the question that's just burning on my heart is, okay, so what's, what's missing? What, what is the value of gathering together as a church? What does that accomplish what does it not accomplish? What can it accomplish? What can it never accomplish? And if you're like me, this season of not being able to gather for worship has probably exposed different 
elements of your walk with God, both strengths and weaknesses. And so no doubt some of you have, have, have not missed a beat in your walk with God. Some of you would probably say, you know, I miss our times of gathering for worship. I long to worship together again, but I'm still seeking God. I'm still experiencing him through the word. I'm still uh, hearing from him. He's prompting me to reach out to people and, and do good works in Jesus' name. Uh, others of you, however, probably feel a lot the way I felt sitting in the back of that canoe, and I couldn't articulate it at the time, but if I, if I could, I would say, I know how to sit in a canoe, but I don't know how to steer this thing. And you may be feeling like, you know, honestly, I know how to go to church. I know how to go and sit in rows and pay attention, uh, and it's good, I get something out of it, but I don't really know how to walk with Christ day by day. I'm guessing a lot of us are somewhere in the middle in different, different weeks, different, different days, we, we would answer that question differently. But whatever it is, uh, whatever happens, whatever happens on Sunday morning has to make sense in light of our larger walk with God. And so we're going to take a few weeks to talk about what we can and should do when we aren't gathered. Whatever that is, it has to be related to our mission as a church. And so I want to just, just spend a couple minutes talking about our mission. Jesus was very clear. After the resurrection, he appeared to his disciples and he said, here's your mission. And it flowed from his mission as the, the Messiah. He said, your mission is to go and make disciples among all the nations, among every grouping of people. It's going to involve going. You can't just stay still. You have to go somewhere across the street, across the world, wherever. You have to go, and then you baptize them, give people an opportunity to confess, I have died and I've been raised to new life with Christ. And then you teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And so that's a comprehensive, comprehensive process. And we teach each other and we admonish each other and we, we learn how to actually obey everything that Christ has commanded. And so this mission is, it's undoable, it's really unthinkable, except for the fact that Jesus said, also, you need to know, I have all authority in the heavenly realm and on earth. In other words, there's no place where I don't have authority. And I will be with you. And so his authority and his presence, that makes it possible. That makes it possible for us to go to all every grouping of people on earth and make disciples. And so everything we do as a church should further the mission that Jesus has given us. If it doesn't, then we shouldn't do it. And so now we ask the question, how do our worship gatherings help us accomplish our mission? And so how, how does that help us make disciples of all the nations? Well, at the heart of it, one of the things it does, it, it helps us be disciples. And, and first and foremost, when we gather for worship, we worship. We express to God, you are worthy of everything we are, everything we have. Honestly, one of the things that I have missed the most the last six weeks is our worship gatherings. I am so nourished. I am so built up when we gather for worship. And understand, I'm a little different. I'm in a unique situation. I usually, when I preach, I come at 7 o'clock, 
and I worship during the rehearsal, and I worship during first service and second service and third service. And so there's this deep void in my life. When we worship together, uh, I, I express things to God that I would not otherwise. And so worship is not a means to an end. Worship is an end in and of itself. God is worthy, and so we worship him. That's first. But as well, there's this byproduct, and Scripture mentions it, there's this byproduct, this great benefit for us when we worship. In Ephesians 5, uh, Paul said that we sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You look across the row and you see somebody worshiping like they mean it, and it's a, it's a, a sermon to you. We admonish each other when we sing. And uh, we, uh, we want to be nourished by that, that time ourselves. As well, the messages that we bring to, from Scripture, they are meant to equip us to walk with God and motivate us to walk with God. We hope you leave every week understanding a passage and having some idea about the significance of that passage in your life. And over time, we hope you grow in your competence and your aptitude, your ability to go to Scripture yourself and hear from God and understand what are the takeaways for, for your life that day. And so, uh, in other words, our times of worship should help equip us and motivate us to walk with Christ when we're not gathered. And so when we are gathered, we hope that we're built up in, in Christ so that we become a community of disciples that's involved in living as disciples and making disciples all week long. And toward that end, uh, even though we're not gathered, we're going to take several weeks talking about the things we can and should do when we're not gathered as a church. And so this week and next week, we're going to look at Luke 9, and it's a passage where Jesus says, here's the basic pattern of discipleship. If you want to be my disciples, this has to be the pattern of your life. And so we're going to talk about things that only you can do when we're not gathered. Faithy free can't do these things for you. Your parents can't do these things for you. Your best friend can't do these things for you. These are things that only you can do. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke 9. We're going to look at verses 23 through 27. And let me set the context. So Jesus is alone with his disciples, and he asks them a question. Who do people say that I am? And uh, uh, his disciples give the range of options. And it's fascinating to notice that all the options people think of, the, the main opinions about Jesus is that his life was so extraordinary that he has to be some prominent figure who's been raised from the dead. So they said, some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Others think you're one of the other prophets that's been raised from the dead. So they give that answer. But then Jesus asks them the question that he asks every single one of us. He says, but who do you say that I am? Eventually, we need to quit giving other people's opinions who they think Jesus is. And we need to say, this is who I think Jesus is. And Peter characteristically answered for everybody. He, he, believes, he said, we believe you are the Christ of God. And so Peter got it. Peter believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And here's Jesus' response in Luke 9, 21 and 22. 
But Jesus warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. In other words, nobody could understand it until after his death and resurrection. Verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And so as the Son of Man, as the Messiah, his mission was to, was to bring blessing to all the families on the earth. He said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. And so his mission would involve going to Jerusalem, being rejected, being crucified, and then being raised up on the third day. In the beginning of verse 23, Jesus explains what people need to do, what you and I need to do, if we actually want to follow him as disciples. And as we, we look at these verses, keep in mind what Jesus has just said about his mission, about what, how he would walk. Because how we walk, if we follow him, there will be a correspondence. You wouldn't expect them to be totally different. And so... Uh, if a teacher is going to the cross, if the master is going to the cross, being his disciple, his apprentice will also involve a cross. And so look at verse 23. Consider what Jesus says about those who wish to come after him. He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Today we're going to consider only verse 23, and we'll look at verses 24 through 27 next week. But notice again in, in verse 23, Jesus begins by saying, if anyone wishes to come after me. Jesus readily acknowledged that not everyone would wish to come after him. Not everybody wanted to be a disciple. And the gospels give examples of people uh, such as the rich young ruler. He was interested in Jesus. He was fascinated by Jesus. He obviously respected Jesus, but at the end of the day, he did not want to follow Jesus. And the same thing is true today. And so I would encourage you at, at some point right now or uh, after this message is over, just ask yourself the question, honestly, do I, do I want to come after Jesus? Do I want to follow him? Do I want to be apprenticed to him to the point where I actually learn from him how to live my life the way he lived? And so... Uh, it's, it's important to just be honest. There's no reason not to be honest about that question. Uh, you can be a very moral, compassionate person and not follow Jesus. You can be a faithful churchgoer 
and not really be apprenticed to Jesus. You can study the Bible, you can study theology, you can be brilliant in a lot of different ways without a commitment to living the way Jesus taught. But if we do want to come after Jesus as his disciples, we'll have to settle some foundational issues in our lives. And I realize that that you may not know really what that means. That may sound overwhelming or you may feel like, you know, I can never do that. I just could never be committed enough or I'm not spiritual enough. Or when I rank myself compared to other people, I can see other people really following Christ, but not myself. Well, if you feel weak, if you feel helpless, you're in a good place to become a disciple of Jesus. You come to him as a little child. You come to him in your weakness, and then you experience his power in that weakness. If you're confident, if you feel like, yeah, I got this. This is the kind of thing I just, I just, I just excel in everything. Yeah, I'm going to excel in this. Then you're at a place where you're setting yourself up for failure. It's when you're humble and when you're, you're weak that you can enter in and be a disciple. His spirit empowers us and moves us forward. But if you do want to be a disciple, Jesus lays out three things that a person needs to do. And the first two involve addressing yourself, your desires, your will, your identity, the most foundational orientation of your life. And the goal is to get ourselves in a position to experience Jesus as fully as possible. And so the first thing Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. We have to deny ourselves. And to deny is the polar opposite of to confess. Whereas we're supposed to confess Christ, we're supposed to deny ourselves. We confess Christ in the sense of acknowledging him and identifying with him. He is my everything. Me, I'm nothing compared to him. Uh, think of Peter and when, when Jesus was arrested. Instead of confessing Christ, yes, I know him, he denied Christ. If he had denied himself, he would have confessed Christ. Now, this isn't a rejection of our personalities or our uniquenesses. We're not saying I'm worthless. Uh, you are so valuable that God sent his unique son to die for you. You're valuable. Doesn't mean you're not yourself. Rather, denying yourself means that we say no to everything within us that keeps us from confessing and following Christ in thought, word, and deed. Here's an analogy you may find helpful. Some of you are having a very intense parenting experience uh, during this season. Some of you are home 24-7 with your child or your children. As wonderful as they are, it's an intense experience. And one of the things, you probably noticed this recently, one of the things that responsible parents do is deny their children things that are not good for them. And uh, you've probably done this a lot lately. And so you deny yourself and you say, no, you may not have seven cookies. You can have one, maybe two. You deny your child, you say, no, you may not borrow the car. You're 12 years old. You may not borrow the car. No, you may not stay out till 3 a.m. Rarely does anything good happen after midnight or 9.30 or whatever you tell tell your kids. And so responsible parents deny their children all sorts of things 
for their own good. And as parents, we don't want to have to deny, deny our children things forever. Why? Because we want them to get to the point where they deny themselves, where they say no to themselves. No, I'm not going to stay up late doing whatever because I have a test in the morning. I'm not going to do this because there's a better good. There's a greater good. And in the same way, our Heavenly Father wants us to mature. He wants us to grow to where we willingly, gladly deny ourselves. We say no to certain things in our lives because we have this greater good. We want to experience Christ. And so this would obviously uh, include saying no to desires that are patently sinful. If you want uh, specifics, read Galatians 5 verses 19 through 21. Paul gives kind of a sample list of the deeds of the flesh. He mentions uh, sexual sins, immorality, impurity, sensuality. He talks about religious sins, sorcery, idolatry. He, he mentions uh, relational sins, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, uh, envying, drunkenness, carousing, all sorts of things, all sorts of things that we should deny ourselves because they, they uh, uh, keep us from really experiencing Christ. In addition, there will be times when we deny ourselves things that are permissible. There's nothing wrong with them in and of itself, but they're not profitable. They keep us from following Christ as fully as possible. And so, for example, you will, you will not find a command in the Bible that says, do not watch television five hours a night, every night. But you may find that it's profitable to deny yourself and break that habit because it dulls your senses. It makes you lethargic. It makes you feel less alive as opposed to more alive. And so there are things that we, we voluntarily deny ourselves, not because they're necessarily bad in them, of themselves, but there's a greater good that we're pursuing. And it's interesting, in the Old Covenant, the, the commands were very specific. They say, you shall not do this at this time. It was very specific in the New Covenant and the New Testament. The commands tend to be more general. Galatians actually says that the Spirit has replaced the law. And so we have these broad commands, and the Spirit leads us and prompts us to obedience that are ways of, of, of obedience and ways we deny ourselves that are specific for each of us. And so first, we, if we want to follow Christ, we deny ourselves. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and then second and take up his cross daily. Take up his cross daily. And so Jesus took up his cross, literally. He, he, he carried a wooden cross on his way to be, being executed. If we wish to follow him, we too need to take up our cross. It's figurative. But Jesus is, is using brutal, shocking imagery here. In our day, he might say, if you want to come after me, you have to strap yourself into an electric chair. Um, Leon Morris made the, the comment in the first century, if you saw somebody carrying a cross, you knew that you would not see them again. They were going on a one-way trip. They would not be back. And so this imagery of, of taking up our, our cross suggests or, or teaches that if we want to follow Jesus, we need to die to self. 
Instead of living for ourselves, I'm living to do what I want to do. We now live exclusively for Christ. And Jesus said, he said, you need to take up your cross daily. And so this isn't a one-time decision. This is a settled way of life. And what we don't do daily, we don't really do. When it comes to, to taking up our cross, we do it daily. And we need to be very careful how we think about this idea of denying, of dying to self, because it can be twisted, it can be distorted, it can become unhealthy in many different ways. As Dallas Willard has pointed out, Jesus taught death to self, not death of self. And so when you live exclusively for Christ, you become more fully the person you were designed to be than if you lived for yourself. Your life will look differently, but you'll look different, but you will be, you will be more yourself than you ever were uh, before then. And so the way I think of it, if you die to self, you are shedding off all the things that mask and distort the image of God within you. You begin to experience the glorified person you will be after you are raised immortal. Or think about it this way, uh, for eternity, you, will, you and I will dwell in the, the new heaven and the new earth. And that is the most God-centered place imaginable. In the new heaven and new earth, nobody will live to themselves. Everybody will live exclusively for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is urging here when he says, take up your cross, he's saying, anticipate that day and begin living like that. Now experience that, that God-centered way of life here and now. And we'll talk about this more next week. But in verse 24, Jesus talked about this pattern of discipleship and he described it as losing your life so that you can find true life. And so we'll talk about why this way of life is far superior to any other option. Uh, even though it's hard, it is full of purpose, it's full of significance, you will experience God in ways that are rich and satisfying. Nobody who ever took up their cross, denied themselves, took up their cross and followed Jesus, regretted it. People who have given their lives for Jesus, they would say, yeah, I would not trade that for anything. We'll all think that in eternity but it's a rich, full, satisfying life. We experience God's presence and blessing even in the midst of suffering. More on that next week. The third, Jesus says, people who wish to come after him, uh, you deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and finally he says, follow me. When Jesus walked the earth, of course, his disciples literally followed him. They walked around behind him. Uh, but in, in the but the uh, uh, the term was used figuratively in the in the Bible for following someone's teaching or someone's way of life. God said of the children of Israel, for example, says, "You will not enter the promised land because you did not follow me fully." They sort of followed God, but they also bowed down to other gods. They grumbled against him. They wished they were slaves in Egypt again. And so, following God fully would have meant accepting that his teaching was good and then by his power walking in that truth. And so if we follow Christ, 
Uh, It means that we will accept his teaching and by the power of the spirit, we walk in it. John 15 uses uses the terminology of abiding him. He said, abide in me and let my word abide in you. It means to remain in him. We don't have a little bit of Jesus and then flee from him. No, we stay there in him. We don't take in his word and then forget it. No, we let it occupy the deepest place in our hearts. Like Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And so that's how we follow him. We accept his teaching. Peter spoke about imitating Jesus' pattern of suffering, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. And so when we learn from him, then we're at a place where we can actually follow him as we live our lives. And of course, to follow Jesus also means to follow him in his mission as the Messiah. Think about it this way. It would be strange if Jesus said, as the Messiah, I came to seek and save those who are lost. It would be strange if his disciples weren't also about seeking so that, that others might be saved. Think about it this way. If you were, were apprenticed to a master mechanic, it would be strange if you didn't have any desire to work on cars. It would, it would be strange if you never actually uh, went into the shop. Uh, if you were apprenticed to a master painter, it would be strange if you never actually painted. Same way it would be strange if we were apprenticed to the Messiah, that we wouldn't enter into this this mission of helping other people come to Christ and then experience him in this this comprehensive sense. And so following Jesus will involve following him and being the light of the world and of making disciples of all the nations. And I'm sure that sounds overwhelming to you. When I think about it, it is to me, but it's a team sport together. You don't do it individually. It's a team. Together, we bear witness for Christ. Together, we help people uh, come to faith in Christ. We baptize people and then teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And so the progression is important here. We're seeing three things. It's only when we deny ourselves. It's only when we take up our cross daily that we will have the mind of Christ and we'll have the motivation to actually follow him. But this is the life we're given. And this is, this is what we do when we're not gathered. We, we pursue Christ as his disciples so that we can be a community of disciples that makes disciples. And that's the satisfying life. Hope you're able to join us next week. We'll talk about us, the benefit of that and what it looks like to lose your life so that you might find it. And so I'm going to pray, and after I pray, on the screen there will be a series of questions that help you internalize the things we've been talking about. And if you're uh, with others uh, right now, you might uh, just have a discussion uh, based on these questions. If you're not, I encourage you to ponder those questions and, and maybe journal, think about the significance for your life. And uh, we'll leave that slide on the, the screen for a few minutes. And afterwards, you will be dismissed. And then a few minutes later, our next-gen programming will begin. Would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus calls, calls people to follow after him, to actually live as disciples. And God, we, we are so uh, amazed at the life Jesus lived, and sometimes we can't even fathom being like him in all the ways that matter. But God, because he calls us, we want to, to hear, and we want to respond and obey God, this, this day, this week, we pray that you would give us the will to deny ourselves, open our eyes to the things that we need to deny ourselves of, uh, ways that we need to die to self so that we might follow Christ. And God, give us the will to really follow, follow him. We pray that this would be a joyful, spirit-led endeavor. We pray that we would find uh, newfound satisfaction, newfound fruitfulness in this. God, for the person who is discouraged and can't fathom living a life like Christ's, pray you give courage to that person. Bring other people, bring circumstances, uh, just directly by your spirit, encourage that person to look to, to Christ and follow him. Father, you have to empower us. Uh, you've promised you will. And so that's what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.